This is Solomon speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 14 through 20, and these are the words that he pens. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline. I'd encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. Number one, write this down. God is purposefully working in both the good times and the bad times. God is purposefully working in both the good times and the bad times. Let me draw your attention back to verse 14. Find it there in your Bible. Solomon says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, be thankful. And in the day of adversity, consider, think about this, that God has made the one as well as the other so that no man may find out anything that will be after him. The subject matter of Ecclesiastes overall is wisdom, at least by and large. The subject matter of Ecclesiastes 7 specifically is wisdom. Last week we said that even though wisdom cannot completely straighten out what is crooked, neither can it explain all of life's mysteries, still yet wisdom can and should make a very positive contribution to our lives. In verse 14, Solomon tells us that wisdom is valuable so that we don't become too proud and conceited in days of prosperity. Or those days when everything seems to be going well, everything seems to be trucking right along without a hitch. Wisdom, wisdom would have us not become too proud or conceited. But at the same time, wisdom keeps us from becoming discouraged and disheartened in times of adversity. Those days that are difficult, those seasons that are fraught with trial. Prosperity leads to joy. And adversity, if we understand it correctly and yield to it rightly, leads to a life of faith in a sovereign God. What Solomon wants us to know, specifically from verse 14, I think is this, that whether we're having a good day or a bad day, there is always a way to glorify God, because today and every day reside under His sovereign control, watch, and care. Whether it is a good day or it is a bad day, there is always a way to glorify God. No matter your circumstances. In the highs and lows, the joys and the trials, the triumphs and the tragedies, there's always a way to glorify God. Because every day resides under His sovereign control, watch, and care. Every blue sky, every sunny day, 
every good meal, every financial gain, every meaningful relationship and conversation, every pleasurable experience, every success in life or work or ministry, every report of good health, every blessing of every kind is another reason to return praise and thanks to God. Now, let's make it personal. Let's just rewind the last 168 hours of our lives. From last Sunday to this Sunday, is that true? Are we in the habit of praising God for His blessing? Returning joy and thanks for God's goodness and His kindness To be joyful, as Solomon exhorts us, is to find our fundamental satisfaction in God and then to receive every blessing in life as a gift of His grace. As a gift of His grace. I mean, Solomon tells us here, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Be thankful. But friends, I know as well as you know that we live in a fallen world. And the vanity of life that is a result of sin is ever-present. Life is challenging. I mean, Solomon has labored for seven chapters, at least seven chapters that we've studied to this point, to demonstrate and display that. I mean, we are kind of living here in the, 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 the cogs or the machinery of life under the sun. You live, you die. You pursue this, And it's gone as quick as it came. Not all days feel like they're full of blessing. Some days we feel like we're on the grinding wheel of adversity. The sky isn't clear. The sun isn't shining. There may be a lack of food on the table. The account balance is insufficient. Our relationships feel strained. Work is a chore. And our health health is failing. We could go on and on and on and on. That's life under the sun. There are good days... And there are bad days, from a human perspective. There are no bad days in God's economy. God's always working primarily for His good, or for His glory, secondarily for our good. We must remember that this day, just as much as the day of blessing, comes from the hand of a sovereign God. Every adversity that comes across our path, whether large or small, is intended to help us grow in some way. Well, that's a change in perspective. I mean, I can just think back over the last several weeks, couple months of my life. In challenging moments where the future may even seem unclear. And yet forgetting in those moments that God wants me to grow and change that he wants me to bear more resemblance to his son, that he wants me to lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways acknowledge him, to trust him, that he knows what is best, to hold my plans with a loose hand. In his heart, a man plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps or her steps. God intends adversity to help us to grow in some way. Even in the day of adversity, we must remember the psalmist's words in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. To rejoice and be glad in it. 
You see, God balances our lives by giving us enough blessing to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. If all we had were blessings in our hand, think about just weight and balance here. If all we had was blessing in our hand, we'd probably fall forward and flat on our forehead. And so God places sufficient burdens on our back to help balance us. Blessings in the hand, burden on the back to keep us upright. And he balances the two perfectly, perfectly. And not only does he balance it, but there's constant fluctuation that keeps us dependent, not on our own guesswork, but on God who knows the beginning from the end. I don't get to know the beginning from the end. I get to walk by faith and not by sight. And a God who's sovereignly in control of every moment of my life, but he knows the beginning from the end. Some of you in here might cross-stitch. Probably most of us have seen uh, a piece of uh, finished work uh, that has been cross-stitched. If you turn something that's been cross-stitched over on the back, what do you see? You see a hot, tangled mess of, col- of colored uh, thread. And that's oftentimes what we see when we look at our lives. But we cannot remember that the reverse side shows a beautiful picture. And God sees it. And he knows it from beginning to end. And he calls us to trust him. To trust him. Not only when it's easy, but also when it's difficult. In his wisdom and sovereignty, God can even turn burdens into blessings. Because he wants us to grow. And so when, when God does allow adversity into our lives, and it causes us to see our sin to fall on our knees in faith and repentance, and that we get up and we grow in Christ's likeness, that is actually a blessing. It's a blessing. Well, what does Solomon mean when he says, look at verse 14 there, God has made the one as well as the other. Well, God causes all people, without exception here, to experience the good and the evil things of this life. He wants us all to pass through the same school of life. None of us experiences life's highs without life's lows. None of us are exempt from the trials and the tragedies and the pain and the sorrows and the discouragements and the loss that accompany life under the sun. But rest assured that each trial that God providentially allows to come to pass in your life and in my life comes with great purpose. God is intentional. He's purposeful. He's just not just, just inadvertently doling out adversity. Well, here, try a little bit of that. Have a little bit of that, and let's see how you handle that one, big guy. That's not the way God works. Purposefully, intentionally. James tells us not only how we should respond to God-ordained trials in our lives, but he also tells us what their purpose is in James chapter 1. It be a familiar text to many of you. You can write down verses 2 through 4 if you want to check it out later. James 1, 2 through 4. And he pens these words. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, adversities of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Well, how are we to respond to adversity? We're to respond to it by considering it pure joy. Why? Because God's growing us. Everything that takes place in your life and my life under the sun is readying you, Christian in particular, for the wedding day in heaven where you will stand face to face before your bridegroom. 
Yes, we are fundamentally already ready. We were the moment that we came to Christ, the moment that we were signed, sealed, and delivered with that promised Holy Spirit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come, but in a practical sense, we're being made ready. And God uses both the the joys and the prosperity of life, and he uses the adversity as well, and he mixes the two perfectly in such a way that grows us and changes us for that great day. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite uh, commentators, once penned these words. He said, the Christian does not know everything, but he does know one thing, and one thing well. Look at him, in trouble, with everything apparently at odds against him. When he or she, the Christian, is so perplexed that they do not know what to pray for as they ought. He is confused and does not always understand. I mean, can I get an amen, an uh uh-huh, we get that? Like, yeah, that's my life. I don't always understand. I don't always get it. Sometimes I'm perplexed at what God's doing in my life. Jones goes on and he says, yet even at that very point, he can say, I do not know which way to turn or go. I do not understand why these things are happening, and I do not know exactly what to ask for at this very moment, but I do know this, that in spite of my ignorance and in spite of everything that is happening to me, this and everything else is working together for my good. For all that I don't know, I always know that, and that should be enough. God is working for my good. He knows the beginning from the end. Why do you suppose that God would ordain our lives in such a way? Where he balances our hands with blessing and our back with burden. Why would God ordain our lives in such a way? Well, I think the answer is so that we remain humble. God weaves blessing and burden in our lives in such a way that keeps us from thinking that we know it all and that we can manage our own lives. Do I have any here this morning that are like me that would much rather try and manage their own life? I mean, with our mouth, we sing and we raise our hands and we say, yes, we trust the Lord, but in our heart of hearts, we're control freaks as long as the day is. That's me often. That's me. God so mingles together adversity and prosperity so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Another way to summarize that is so that man will not be able to discern his future. We know what the ultimate future holds. We know what the end of the grand narrative says. But I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the next day holds. And I'm not called to know what tomorrow or the next day holds. I'm called to fix my eyes on Christ, to set my mind on things above, not on things of earth. When God sees fit to, pro- to prosper us, we should be thankful and rejoice. When God sees fit to allow adversity, we should consider His goodness and the comprehensiveness of His plan for us. You see, when Solomon tells us to consider, he's telling us to do something more than just simply to see what God has done. He's telling us to accept what God has done and to surrender to His sovereign will. 
Friends, let me just remind you that God knows exactly how much and how long is best. God knows exactly how much and how long is best. His hand is on the thermostat and his eye is on the thermometer. He has inscrutable purposes beyond finite human understanding. And so we can learn to grow, to profit from both pain and pleasure. No long, uh, it doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian. God ensures that we must still walk by faith and not by sight. Knowing that there is soon coming a day when we will walk by sight and not by faith. But until then, until then. We walk by faith. I thought of just a couple of God-honoring examples or God-honoring responses to trials uh, that we find in the Bible, and there are just a plethora of examples. Let me just share with you a couple here. First, Joseph. Joseph. Here's a young man who's hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit and left for dead, sold into slavery, accused of taking advantage of Potiphar's wife. He's then thrown into prison. He's forgotten about by Pharaoh's butler. And when all seems lost, seems that Joseph's circumstances are working in every direction except for good, he then interprets a dream for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh rewards him by placing him second in command and giving him charge of all the food in the land as they enter into a seven-year famine. Now, this is what God's doing. Think about that that cross-stitch there. Joseph can't see all of this. He doesn't understand all of it. On the other side of the story, threatened by the lack of food, Joseph's brothers now trek to Egypt and find themselves unknowingly standing before Joseph, who they had recently tried to kill. And how does the world respond to such a set of circumstances? If you were Joseph, how does the world respond to such a set of circumstances? With bitterness, anger, and resentment. I don't deserve this. Why me? I've served God. I've put my time in. I have good church attendance. I I give. I try to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Why me? We don't oftentimes verbalize that type of language, but in our heart of hearts it swirls around. But Joseph understood that all that had happened to him happened in light of God's sovereign will. And so he looked his brothers in the eyes and he said, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. You see, God never pursues his glory at the expense of the good of his people. Neither does he ever seek our good at the expense of his own glory. It's never an either-or, either God's glory or our good, or our good or God's glory. It's never either-or. God has designed His eternal purpose so that His glory and our good are inextricably bound together. This should provide us with immeasurable comfort and encouragement. If we're going to learn to trust God in adversity, we must believe That just as certainly as God will allow nothing to subvert His glory, so He will allow nothing to spoil the good He is working in us and for us. Book plug. If you don't have a copy of Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, you must acquire a copy. This, This ought to be on the short list, in my opinion, for what it's worth, which is about two cents, 
of every Christian individual. You ought to read this, reread this. Don't, don't read it before you read your Bible. Don't read any book before you read your Bible. But this, this is an incredible treasury of encouragement to trust God even when life hurts. Bridges exemplified that. He modeled that. He went home to be with the Lord not too long ago. But an excellent, excellent book. Trusting God even when life hurts. Well, there's Joseph. How about Job? How did Job respond to the trials in his life? Well, his livestock had been stolen, all of his servants had been slaughtered, and all ten of his children were killed when the house that they were eating in collapsed on their heads. In what seems to be a span of just a few minutes, Job lost nearly everything that he had. I mean, can you imagine the heartache? Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the questions that must have rolled through his mind, and yet how does he respond well, in Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job cries out, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That's trust in the midst of adversity. That's, that's having a, a rock-solid grasp being tethered to the sovereignty of God in adversity. Recognizing God's sovereign rights, the fact that the Lord gave and the Lord take away or took away, Job praised the Lord. He followed adversity with adoration, woe with worship. He didn't give in to bitterness. And then on top of all that, he refused to blame God for any wrongdoing. He uttered these words. He said, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And that statement's followed by the words, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Wow. Again, I think about just the last 168 hours, how many times have I second-guessed the nature, the character, and the attributes of God and sinned against him with my lips. In chapter 13, Job utters these words, Though he, God, slay me, yet I will hope in him. What words of encouragement were facing trials of many kinds? Let me ask you a question. And I've asked it before, but it bears repeating. When, when was the last time that you thanked God for your trials? When was the last time that you thanked God for your trials? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for the daily bread. Like, standard question, standard answer. But when was the last time that you thanked him for slaying you? Like Job. That's where the rubber meets the road, friends. That's where our theology really gets employed. We oftentimes thank God for the good, but we tend to doubt his goodness and doubt his grace. We tend to grow joyless and thankless in the midst of trials and adversity. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, which is a phenomenal, I would encourage you to memorize 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Paul says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in what? All circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Like literally a sentence and a half. You could memorize it before the sun sets today. And don't just memorize it to have it wrote in your mind that you can recite it like a parrot. Memorize it so that it is lodged deep down in the depths of your heart so that when adversity does come, it's a part of who you are. 
It's a part of the fabric of your life. Let me ask you another question. First question was, when was the last time that you thanked God for your trials? Question number two, what if God's answer to your trials is this? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Be still, my child. What if that's God's answer? What if in God's wisdom he's determined not to turn down the trial, but instead to turn up his grace? If we understand that God is in control and that he's working all things for our good, then we can say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Yet I will hope in him. You see, losses and disappointments are the trials of our faith, our patience, and our obedience. When we're in the midst of prosperity, it's difficult to know whether we have love for the benefactor or only for his benefits. Think about that. When everything is smooth sailing, when there's no storm on the seas, when the sea is glassy, it's hard to know whether we really have love for the benefactor or we just have love for his blessings, his benefits. It's in the midst of adversity that our piety is put to the trial. Most of us, again, would rather, we'd prefer to control our own destiny, but instead we should entrust our lives to the loving care of a sovereign God. And if we do this, I submit to you that we will be well prepared for both the good days and the bad days. God is purposefully working in both the good times and the bad times. You believe it? Prepare for adversity in the day of prosperity. Don't wait until the day of adversity to figure out how you'll respond. It's just another way of saying plan your obedience in advance. Plan your obedience in advance. Consider how you will respond in the day of adversity and rehearse it and memorize God's word. Drink it down so deeply. Let it permeate your heart and mind so that there is not a doubt uh, in your heart and mind how you will respond in the day of adversity. Number two, write this down. God determines both the days of the righteous and the unrighteous. God determines the days of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Look at your Bible there. Find verses 15 through 18. Let's deal with those here for a few moments. Solomon says this, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not, make for your, or do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy your life? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Well, I think it's safe to say that life under the sun presents us with a number of difficulties. Uh Uh-huh or uh uh-uh. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Life under the sun presents us with a number of difficulties. Life under the sun perplexes us at times. It confounds us. It confuses us at times. Solomon has experienced a lot in his life, but here he states that he has seen everything. 
in Hebrew, uh, there's a little bit more emphasis to this phrase, I've seen everything. This is akin to the person who sees something wild or outlandish and says, now I've seen everything. I've seen it all now. That's what Solomon is saying here in verse 15. Well, now I've seen everything. I've seen it all now. I could be wrong, but I think there's a bit of cynicism uh, here in verses 15 through 18. Remember, Solomon is a human being. Wise, yes. Broken, yes. And so I think what we see here in verses 15 through 18 comes with a tone of cynicism. The particular conundrum that Solomon presents us here with in verse 15 is the question, why do the righteous seem to suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? He says there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, the length of a person's life does not appear to Solomon at least to depend on his spirituality or his moral compass. Consider the fact that Jesus lived to be 33, but Hugh Hefner lived to be 91. Now Solomon would have known Deuteronomy 440 very well. Okay? Moses writes these words, speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, Therefore... You shall keep his, God's statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and for your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Solomon would have known those words. And yet when Solomon looks out in his experience of life, he is confounded because he sees the wicked's life being prolonged, but the righteous person's life being cut short, at least from his perspective. And he doesn't know how to do that math in his heart and his mind. And I see one thing in, in the scripture, but yet experientially I seem to see another thing. Well, righteous living or obedience to the word of God does prolong a person's life. While disobedience or wicked living does shorten an individual's life. Having said that, this does not mean that the righteous will live longer than the average person's lifespan. Neither does it mean that the wicked will live a shorter time than average. God alone knows the number of days for each individual. Matter of fact, he has set their number before there was yet one of them, the psalmist tells us. On the one hand, God extends the lives of some righteous individuals for their godliness, but yet they still might die younger than some of the wicked people around whom they live. On the other hand, God shortens the lives of some wicked people as a result of the, of the debilitating effects of their sin and the judicial actions that he takes against them. However, the same wicked individual might live longer than the righteous who live among them. And so what we have to remember in all of this is that God sees things from a different perspective than we do. God sees things from a different perspective. God sees things from an atemporal, outside of the temporal perspective. Again, he knows the beginning from the end. We must keep in mind that the wicked only seem to prosper if we adopt a short view of time. Solomon knows that it will not be well with the wicked in the end. As a matter of fact, he's going to tell us that one chapter later in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. 
Turn over there for just a second and check it out. Ecclesiastes 8. Look at 12 and 13. Or 12 through 13, rather. Solomon says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear the Lord or there is no fear of the Lord before him. Solomon knows the right answer, as do we. But he struggles with what he sees and experience, as do we oftentimes. King David wrote a rather long psalm encouraging us not to be envious of evildoers. Psalm 37, David says this, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Yet trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. David says, don't don't fret when you see the evildoer seemingly prosper. You do what is right, regardless. You seek to please the Lord regardless. Christians must never be discouraged. God will make all things right in the end. What is crooked now will be made straight. Ecclesiastes has already taught us that. God will make all things right in the end. Asaph was envious of the wicked until he went into the sanctuary of God and he discerned their end in Psalm 73. If you want to look at two great psalms this week, look at Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. Psalm 37, written by David. Psalm 73, written by Asaph. Asaph was envious. And then he goes into the sanctuary and he meets with the Lord and he discerns the end of the wicked. And he comes away saying this, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Christians, set your minds on things above. Seek to please the Lord. Don't be distracted uh, by the right or the left or what's going on around you. I grew up in Indianapolis, and like in lots of major cities, you can pay for a horse and carriage ride, and every single one of those horses has blinders on, right? And those blinders keep that horse from from being distracted by the flashing car light over here, the the honking car horn over there, the belligerent individual stumbling over here, the fight or the quarrel over there. It keeps that horse looking straight ahead. Uh, And Solomon would have us to do the same. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. And God will make all things right in the end. Well, since God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, we then cannot comprehensively know the mind of the Lord. And so Solomon concludes saying, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
This is, this is Solomon's conclusion. So, verse 15 is the conundrum. 16, 17, and 18 are Solomon's conclusion to seeing that the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to be snuffed out early. Solomon gives us two opposing moral dangers in verses 16 and 17. Some commentators understand Solomon to say that moderation is needed in life. Look at your Bible there again. Look at verses 16 and 17. Solomon says, Do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Some commentators actually, and I struggle greatly with this interpretation, think or understand, interpret Solomon to be saying that moderation is necessary in life. In other words, don't be overly righteous or too great a sinner, but instead fall somewhere in between. If that doesn't sit right with you, it shouldn't. This thinking has been dubbed the golden mean. Just kind of settling into the mean or the average, somewhere in between righteousness and wickedness. I would submit to you that to interpret the text in this manner is incredibly erroneous. And it would run contrary to the overarching emphasis of Scripture to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness or to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So in order to understand the text correctly, because if you just read it uh, as it's translated, I can understand, though I think it is a false interpretation, how someone would get there. Well, just the golden mean. Just don't be too wicked, don't be too righteous, just somewhere in between. But in order to understand the text, we need to know the tense of the verbs here in verse 16. Uh, Don't... uh, Track with me here for a second. I'm going to try to make this as, as bottom shelf as possible here. But there's three voices in the Hebrew. Okay, three voices. There's the active voice. An example would be I ran. That's the, it's the active voice. I ran. There's a passive voice in Hebrew. Uh, that would be like I was made to run. I was made to run. Someone was chasing me, uh, whatever the situation or scenario may be, but I was made to run. And then there's a third voice, and that's the reflexive voice, and that would be translated like, I ran myself. I ran myself. Well, the verbs in verse 16 are reflexive. In other words, Solomon is referring to self-righteousness and the pride associated with thinking that we have somehow arrived. My Hebrew Hebrew teacher in seminary once said uh, that reading your Bible in translation, just like we all have it right here, reading your Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil. And so that's where it's helpful to to have a little bit of an understanding. Uh, uh, Probably not many of us, I am not a Hebrew scholar uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but to have some sort of working uh, understanding of of biblical languages, Koine Greek in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old Testament, is very helpful. And I'm very thankful that we have some great resources and tools, even free stuff online today that can help us plunge uh, into the text just a little bit. Or maybe you have a a word study Bible, things like that. There's lots of great resources uh, that can help us interpret the text rightly, to rightly divide God's word. In any event, verses 16 and 17 urge us not to be legalistically self-righteous or to be sinfully licentious. In other words, what Solomon is saying here is don't be overly confident that just because you're righteous, you'll live to see your 100th birthday. 
Again, this is coming in the context of verse 15 here, where Solomon says, man, it seems like the righteous are snuffed out early, and it seems like the wicked are prolonged, their lives are prolonged. Well, Solomon's saying, now wait just a second. Don't become too self-righteous. Don't become too arrogant. Don't become too proud in your own righteousness that you think that you will somehow prolong your days. Remember, all your days were numbered before there was yet one of them. So verse 16 there, Solomon is saying, flee from legalistic self-righteousness. Don't be overly righteous. That's don't be overly self-righteous. Reflexive. Don't make yourself to be too wise. That's arrogant, proud. Why should you destroy yourself? Well, there's the end. There's the result. This has to do with how a person thinks about himself or herself and thus presents themselves. The phrase, do not make yourself too wise, might actually be translated, don't play the wise man. Don't play the wise man. Don't play the wise woman. Solomon meant that we should not depend on our own righteousness or wisdom to guarantee God's blessing because we might be confounded, dismayed, or disappointed just like the righteous people whom Solomon had seen perishing in spite of their righteousness. Walt Kaiser once said, this is a, uh, a very clear, I think, description of some individuals, but he once said, people sometimes delude themselves as well as their family and their friends. How do they, how do, they do that? How do they delude themselves? Well, he says they do that through a multiplicity of pseudo-religious acts of moral superiority. They just act all righteous. Like they got it all together without sin, wisdom beyond their years. It's like, you know, that's the, that's the pinnacle of the Christian. There is no such thing, by the way. There's this ostentatious showmanship in the act of worship a spirit of hypercriticism against minor deviations and a disgusting conceit and holier-than-thou-art attitude veneered over the whole mess. In other words, Kaiser is describing a Pharisee. Outwardly, beautiful. Inside, full of dead men's bones. Don't fall into this legalistic self-righteousness, Solomon says, then 17, he says, neither follow, fall into licentiousness. Look at verse 17 there. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Well, it should be noted that Solomon is not saying that wickedness in moderation is acceptable again. Not what he means when he says, don't be overly wicked. Solomon recognizes wickedness as a fact of human experience. He recognizes sinfulness as a fact of human experience. And so walking the path that pleases God means walking between two extremes. First of all, we're to reject or to put off this self-righteousness, this ego-driven wisdom. But on the other hand, we should not let our native wickedness run its own course. That's the tension that Solomon is uh, presenting us here with. Put off, put off the self-righteousness and ego-driven wisdom, but at the same time, don't swing too far over here and let that native sin 
run its course. The fact that God did not punish in some cases should not be taken as a license to sin. Don't, don't look at the wicked who seem to prolong their lives and think, oh, maybe I can dabble in that as well. Verse 18 is a balance for the warning. Solomon says it's good. Look at your Bible there. That you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. This is a bit of a confusing piece of syntax here. Uh, what I want to extract from it is Solomon's phrase, to fear God. Solomon urges us to take hold of true righteousness and wisdom. The key to both is found in the phrase, the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Remember Solomon, it was he who told us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us this. New Testament Christians, perk your ears up here. Paul says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, here's the word, the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Let me just marry that together with what Solomon is saying here. Solomon's saying, reject self-righteousness. Reject legalistic self-righteousness and your ego-driven wisdom. And then Paul follows it up here and he says, Christian, Jesus Christ is your wisdom and he is your righteousness. Therefore, if you're going to boast, boast in him. Not in you. Not in you. There's a balance there in verse 18. Let's bring it to a conclusion here. Number three, and this will be brief. God will hold us all accountable. God is purposefully working in both the good times and the bad times. God determines the days of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And then God will hold us accountable. Look at verses 19 and 20 there in your Bible. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Hopefully lots of other New Testament verses are springing to life in your mind as you read those words there because it sounds a whole lot like something else Paul said. We'll get there in just a moment. Here's what Solomon wants us to know here. While we should strive for true righteousness and wisdom, the truth is no matter how righteous or wise we attempt to be, we are all sinners who are desperately in need of God's mercy and His grace. Solomon says that even the wise and even the righteous manifest the effects of a fallen nature. No one can claim to be free of sin during his or her lifetime. Under the sun. That flaw in human character prevents anyone from being able to depend on his own wisdom or righteousness. Now, verse 20 sounds very Pauline to me. Paul wrote these familiar words. 
In Romans chapter 3, he said, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside. They together have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet is swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and in the way of peace they have not known. There is no, here's the phrase again, fear of God before their eyes. Sounds a whole lot like what Solomon is saying in a condensed or concise statement in verse 20. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then Paul goes on to declare that the wages of sin is death. Although Solomon does not uh, refer to wages in this way, Solomon does speak of the labor of mankind and the fact that labor does not succeed in gaining an escape from death. Just let your mind go back to prior weeks of our study. Solomon has saying that all of your labor does not provide a way out. It does not provide a way of escape from death. You're going to work and then you're going to die. Paul continues his proclamation with the contrast, but the gift of God is eternal life. And interestingly enough, Solomon expresses a similar thought by focusing on the gifts that one receives from God in his life and the fact that he has set eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so when we connect Ecclesiastes 7.20, the final verse for our consideration this morning, with verses 15 through 18, We learn that no amount of righteous living can prevent the sin that so easily assails every single person. Both sin and death are certain. Neither can be avoided. Thus, the question that remains involves how a person can be delivered from sin and death. How a person or how an individual can experience life beyond the sun. Herein lies the simple yet profound message of the gospel. God created man. He created us in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It wasn't very long before man decided to go his own way, do his own thing. We sinned, we fell from a right relationship with God. Sin creates separation between a holy God and the creation. God in his mercy and in his grace sent his son, the God-man, who was incarnate, became flesh, lived among us for 33 years, was crucified on a Roman cross, not for what he had done, but for, what, for who he said he was. The innocent hanging there on the cross for the guilty, crucified, dead, buried, now risen, ruling, reigning, and soon returning. And by way of being connected to him in vital union with Jesus Christ, by faith and repentance alone, Not faith and repentance and my works, not faith and repentance and my uh, Bible knowledge and my BSF class and my church attendance and my youth group. Faith and repentance and faith and repentance alone. I can come into vital union with Jesus Christ. All of his righteousness becomes mine. All my sin paid for in full on Calvary's cross. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Do you know Jesus in that way? That's the only way to really experience life under the sun and to have life with Christ 
for all eternity. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Friend, you are either in Adam this morning with all the weight of your sin resting upon your own shoulders or you are found in Christ where all the weight of your sin was placed upon his shoulders. By his stripes, we are healed. If you're in Adam, you stand condemned. You'll die and you'll be judged and rightfully so. If you know Christ, all of his benefits are yours. Our citizenship is in heaven and we just await our Savior from there. We would urge you to repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Such challenging stuff here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Practical in so many ways. Tangible, depthy, theological Uh, Lord, I pray that what we know to be true about you, our theology would lead to doxology even in the midst of adversity, that we would praise you and honor you and worship you and extol you and magnify you and glorify you in days of prosperity, but that nothing would change in the day of adversity. Help us to be rock solid. Help us to believe you by faith, to trust in your good and sovereign and wise plan. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the unrighteous, Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, to please you and to honor you with our lives. We know that the days of both the righteous and the unrighteous are in your hand. You determined them before there were yet one of them. And yet we know that there is a reckoning day coming. There is a day where the accountant will stand before the individual. And you know with exacting precision what's in every one of our hearts. You will rip every rug up from the floor. Everything will be, made, will be laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And Father, I pray that every person here this morning will be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of their own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith. Make it so for your name and your renown. And all God's people said, amen.